You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 29. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they would not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for giving us your word. We thank you for um, also giving us your Holy Spirit who can help open our eyes and our hearts to receive everything that you have for us today. I pray that for everyone here, I know we all come in different ways, that would you, Holy Spirit, just minister to each heart in a special and unique way. Uh, Help us to see you, God, as you really are. And I pray that you would use us to transform us from the inside out. In Christ's name, I pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so growing up, I went through a lot of different phases. Uh, I went through a grunge phase uh, where I bought a skateboard, uh, started dating a girl who wore Jinko jeans, and we listened to things like Nirvana, Offspring, Blink-182, anybody else in here know those guys, okay? Um, yeah, I went through a preppy stage. I went through a stage where I wore the gold chain with the charm, Abercrombie and Fitch, anybody? Remember those days? American Eagle. Uh, Birkenstocks, I could never keep them on my feet. They'd always fall off my feet for some reason. Uh, I guess I have narrow feet. I don't know. And so I, I did the Doc Martin sandals. That's what I would rock, okay? Um, so I did the preppy stage. This one may surprise you. I also did a country stage. Uh, yeah, it was about a girl, I promise you. Uh, there was a girl who was a big Kenny Chesney fan. She asked me to go to a Kenny Chesney concert. And she's like, wait, 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 you do like Kenny Chesney, right? I was like, I love Kenny Chesney. And so, like, I went and uh, borrowed uh, one of my buddy's CDs to try to learn all the songs. I even bought a cowboy hat, if you can imagine that. Uh, I, I, like, went all in. I've actually, true story, worked on a farm for a full summer, um, if you can imagine that. Me shoveling horse manure for a whole summer in my cowboy hat. Can you picture it? 
You can't picture it. Um, no. I went through a lot of phases. And the phases that I went through really depended on who I was around, who I was trying to impress. Um, I, I did a lot of different stuff. And behind kind of these phases, behind, you know, changing kind of who I was, molding into the people that I was around, behind all of that, uh, behind the image management, behind the countless hours I would spend in front of a mirror, right? Making sure my hair was right, making sure my chest was out, my shoulders are back now. It's more like trying to make sure my gut is in, right? But and behind all of that, there was really one common theme running through it. And it was this reality that I just wanted to be liked. I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be loved. And yet, because I was very well aware of my own failures and flaws, because I never really felt like I measured up completely to the cool kids around me. I felt like I needed to perform. I needed to be better than I am in order to get your approval. And I would love to be able to say that now as a 40-year-old man, like, I don't struggle with that at all. But that would be a lie. And the truth is, there are times in my life where I still struggle with the temptation of trying to, to, to work, to, to present myself in such a way that you think highly of me. The pastors were loving enough that's one thing that's great about these pastors is, is they, they sense this in me. They noticed this in me last fall and came and said, hey, man, there's a way you're using ministry, the way they're using preaching uh, to try to get the approval of others, to try to convince people maybe you're, you're better than you are, or more spiritual than you are, or whatever it may be. And what is all of that about? Well, it's really about the, the, the reality that I notice there is a gap between who I think I am and who I think you want me to be. And as a way of trying to fill that gap, I feel like I have to perform. I have to do something better than what I'm currently doing. And my guess is today that I'm not alone. I guess it's today that there are some of you in here, if you're being honest, you'd say this is a temptation for you. That for some of you in here, especially in a religious context like this, you come in here and you feel like you have to wear a mask. You come in here and you feel like that you have to present yourself as flawless or at least close to flawless. It's why whenever people ask you, how are you doing? You respond by saying what? I'm fine. Everything's fine. When everything's not fine. Um, or it's why you avoid community. Because you don't want to admit that everything is not fine. Um, it's a big reason for why we don't share the gospel or evangelize out of fear of rejection. It's a reason why we don't want to get below the surface and share our feelings or share specific sins that we are struggling with. It's why we spend an incredible amount of energy trying to curate the perfect online persona. It's why we put pictures up that make us or our family look as good as we possibly can look. Earlier this week, I was sitting in a coffee shop in Nashville, and I uh, read a quote from Kim Kardashian. Um, and, and Kim Kardashian, in many ways, has been like the patron saint of social media. Um, and when talking about her Instagram account, here's what she said. She said, I need to take about 1,200 selfies a day in order to get the good ones that I can post online. Now, I don't know if she's exaggerating or not, but that's a lot. And, and I know this is an extreme example, but, you know, aren't we so quick to look down on her when in reality we're not that much different? In the fact that we also at times feel this need to display a version of ourselves that looks smarter, funnier, sexier, healthier, happier, or more spiritual than what we really are. And if this is the way you're living, here's what I want you to understand today. Even if you could convince other people that you're better than what you really are, 
and you could get all of the approval ratings and all of the likes and all of the shares, and it still would not give you what you think it's going to give you. Uh, even if you got all the acceptance, like, 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 like it's still not going to give you what you think it will give you. Um, I was reading a report uh, this past week from Sapien Labs. And after studying over 27,000 people, they discovered that the earlier a kid gets a smartphone, the worse their mental health is going to be as an adult. That the earlier a kid connects to social media and begins to compare themselves to this other person who always looks better than them, has better experiences than them, better life than them, the sooner a kid is exposed to that, the more likely they are to grow up as an adult with, quote, low self-worth along with increased anxiety, aggression, and depression. And I share that, listen, not at all to make you feel shame if you've already given your kid a smartphone. Like, you're doing what's best for your kid. Like, well done. I'm not here to, like, that's between you and, and y- y'all can figure that out. My point in sharing that is not to make you feel bad as a parent. My point is just to say this. Deep within all of us, even at an early age, we see this. There is this desire to be known, to belong, and be loved. To be accepted for who we are, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And at the end of the day, listen, if you look to the world, or if you look to social media, or even if you look to your spouse, or you look to your kids, or you look to your boss, or you look to a pastor, or someone else to give you that stamp of approval, like at the end of the day, if you look there, like that stamp of approval will not be enough to sustain you. It will not be enough to give you what you need in life. And why is that? Because ultimately behind this desire for the approval from other humans is the desire for the approval from God. Whether you realize it or not, you are longing for the approval of the most glorious being, the one who is the source of all that is good and beautiful and true. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, Solomon, a man who experienced it all, all the money, all the fame, all the sex, all the approval, all the popularity, all the parties, none of it satisfied. And why is that? Because in Ecclesiastes three eleven, he says that God created every human with eternity in their hearts, meaning God created you with a desire for God. He created you with a desire for himself. You were born with a hole in your heart, and only God's love will ever be able to completely fill that hole up. And what the preacher wants us to see today is, listen, we were not only created for God's love, but there are actually two ways that we can go about trying to get that love. There are two ways we can go about trying to experience that love. And the two ways could not be any more different. There is a way for you to try to experience the love of God today in a way that gives you this unshakable joy, this life. And it actually does not lead to joy, but it actually leads to more fear. There is a way of trying to get the love of God in a way that actually does not bring about life, but it brings about death. There's a way to try to get God's love that that does not help you delight in God, but creates more distance between you and God. And this is what he wants us to see. There's two approaches to trying to go from just knowing about the love of God to experiencing the love of God. And these two approaches that he's going to lay out for us, he's going to sum up through these two experiences, these two mountains, Mount Zion and Mount Sinai. He said these two mountains are going to represent the two approaches, the two ways in which every one of us are tempted to try to get love from God. One way works and the other one does not at all work. And so 
as we dive into this, here's the question I want you to think about. I know I'm in front of a crowd, but I'm in front of a crowd of individuals. So here's the question. As I go through this, ask yourself, which mountain am I on? Which mountain am I on? What is my approach to trying to experience God's love in my life? And with that question on your mind, I want you to look back with me. Hebrews 12, verse 18. Hebrews 12, verse 18. Let's look at it together. He says, you have not come, talking to the church here in Hebrews, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. What is the preacher in Hebrews talking about here? Well, he's referring back to Israel's story. He assumes you know this story, by the way. Remember, he's talking to an audience that knew the Old Testament off the back of their hand. But we don't know the Old Testament off the back of our hand. So, so what he's talking about here, just to give you context, is God has freed the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. He parts the Red Sea. They go through the dry ground. They then go through the wilderness. And they come to Mount Sinai. And God says to the people of Israel, hey... Let's hang out. Let's have a relationship. Like, I want to know you. I want you to know me. Like, let's, let's do this thing. Which sounds good, but here's the problem. God is a holy God. And he cannot possibly have a relationship with a sinful people who are left to their sins. Like, if you try to walk into the holy presence of God as a sinful person, like, like it will obliterate you. And so he says to the people of Israel, I don't want you to die, so here's what I want you to do. Clean yourself up. He says, like, stop having sex with your spouse for a while. Like he tells them all these other kind of like crazy things to, to start doing and stop doing. He tells them to wash themselves, to engage in these, these, uh, these cleansing rituals. He gives them all of these laws, all these kind of rules and regulations to obey. And then he says, when you come to the mountain... Don't go up the mountain until you hear the trumpet blast. If you do that, like if even your pet, like a little cat, right, like, like, like whatever, like gets up on the mountain, kill it. Because if it gets up on the mountain, it's going to experience my presence. And if it comes down with some of my holiness, it will destroy you. It's a, it's a wild story. But this is what's happening. And this is what the, the preacher is referring to. So these people, they do all that God calls them to do. They come to the mountain. And what is their experience like at Mount Sinai? It is not exactly a walk in the park. It's not exactly a picnic. God's presence comes down on Mount Sinai and it is like this storm cloud with lightning and thunder. The whole thing begins to shake. God begins to speak. And when they speak, they weren't like, they're like, oh, isn't this so pleasant? It's great to hear the voice of God. They're like, stop talking. Like, if you don't stop talking, we're all going to die. Like, like, like Moses, you go talk. Like, like you go talk to him. We can't talk. We, we can't take it. I mean, they literally are terrified by the presence of God. And this is not just a one-time event in Scripture. Remember Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah gets a vision of the presence of God? There's these angels circling God's throne, and they're all saying what? Holy, holy, holy. God is holy. That's what they're saying over and over. Like, of all the things they could be saying, not God is love, love, love. God is holy, holy, holy holy. Isaiah gets a part of that. He, he stands in the holy presence of God. And what is the very first thing out of Isaiah's mouth? It's not, this is cool. It's not, what's up, God? Like he says, 
I'm dead. I'm undone. I'm a man of uncleanness. I am, I am such a sinner. I gotta get out of here or I am gonna be destroyed. That's his knee-jerk reaction to the presence of God. Remember, this is Isaiah. He's a prophet of Israel. This ain't just some bum off the streets. This is the man that God picked to represent himself to the people. And if a guy like that walks into God's presence and thinks he's going to get destroyed by God's holiness, what do you think would happen to someone like you and me when left to our own sinfulness? And, and, and listen, if that bothers you, if you're like, why does God have to be this way? If he's loving, why, do, why does he have to be this way? You ever wondered that? And I love the way the Bible Project guys talk about this in their video on holiness. They, they say that God's holiness is like the sun, S-U-N. Now think about this for a second. The sun is an object in the sky, I think it's 93 million miles away, and it's always there, even if you're not aware of it. This morning when I came for the early service, it was cloudy, I wasn't even aware of the sun. Walk back out, it's sunny, I'm now aware of it again. But it's always there, even if you're not aware of its presence. Now here's the deal, if you spend too much time exposed to that sun, it will hurt you. In fact, I just recently had uh, some skin cancer removed from my forehead. And the dermatologist told me when I was leaving, he said, Jared, you need to wear sunscreen every single day to, quote, protect yourself from the sun. Isn't that kind of creepy to think about? We have to protect ourselves from the sun that is 93 million miles away. Now, is that because the sun is so bad? Is it? No. If we don't have the sun, what happens to us? We die. And yet, we have to protect ourselves from it. Now, is that because the sun is a jerk? Is that because the sun is just intolerant, closed-minded, hateful? The problem is not with the sun. The problem is with us. The problem is not that the sun is too powerful. The problem is that we are just too puny. It's the same way when it comes to God. The problem is not with God's holiness. The problem is with our sinfulness. Does that make sense? And this is why the closer people get to God in the Old Testament, the more terrified they are. Just as if I went two million more miles closer to the sun, I would be incinerated, even though I'm still like 91 million miles away from it. The same is true when it comes to the holiness of God. And God's not the problem. We are the problem. And the Israelites realized that on this day in Mount Sinai, even after all of their working and all of their toiling and all of their sacrificing and trying to clean themselves up, it did not work. Rather than feeling closer to God, they felt terrified of God. And why is that? Because they were confronted with just how evil they are, how broken they are, how sinful they are. They might have felt really good when they were comparing themselves to Gary over here. You know, like, hey, I'm not great, but I'm better than Gary. You know, better than Keith, better than Pam. Doing all right, I think. I think they felt pretty good probably when comparing themselves to others. But as soon as they get in God's presence and they compare themselves to him, they too, like Isaiah, were shaken to the core. They were undone because of how much evil they realized was actually inside of them. 
Megan, uh, my wife, whenever we got married, she was the leading mistress in the play Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, and we were talking about this last night. Um, if you've never watched the play or the movie or read the book, it's actually a great case study for humanity. And what happens in this story? You have Dr. Jekyll, who's a pretty good dude, pretty moral guy, having some success. But there's this part of him, this evil part of him, that he has a love-hate relationship with. There's a part of him that he feels ashamed of this, this evil, ashamed of this sinful, but then he also kind of likes it. It gives him a little something that he kind of wants to indulge every now and then. But the problem is he don't want this evil to get out of control. And so he says, I'm going to create a potion. And if I take the potion, I'll be able to separate these two things. I'll still be able to be my good self at day, and I'll be able to be my bad self at night. I get the best of both worlds. Problem is, he underestimated just how evil the evil was. And so what happens? Mr. Hyde, who represents the evil, right? At first, he's only coming out whenever he drinks the potion, whenever he manages it. But then the evil begins to grow. The sin begins to grow, and then Mr. Hyde begins to come out whenever he wants, wherever he wants, begins to consume his life, dominate his life. Eventually, he drives Dr. Jekyll Hyde, uh, uh, drives Dr. Jekyll to the point where he becomes mad. I mean, he literally commits suicide. And, and the, the great thing about this story, as far as like showing us our own sins, it says, look, the same is true when it comes to us. When we try to manage our own sinfulness and our own power and our own strength, it doesn't get better. It gets worse. When we try to clean ourselves up in our own strength and our own power, it doesn't get better. We just realize how we're even dirtier and even more sinful than we thought that we ever were. Sufjan Stevens is a indie rocker. Uh, any Sufjan Stevens fans in here? Am I I'm most likely. Okay. Yeah, of course. John Burrell's back here. Um, I think he claims to be a Christian. But he wrote a song years ago called John Wayne Gacy Jr. Anybody know who John Wayne Gacy Jr. is? Okay, yeah, serial killer. He used to dress up like a clown, go to kids' birthday parties, but then at night, like, he would seduce teenage boys, kill them, and bury them under his house. Okay, not a good guy. Um, but Sufjan Stevens decides to write a song about him, and, and, and many music critics have called, has called this song an absolute masterpiece. I would encourage you to go listen to it at times. It's, like, beautifully eerie. And the whole song's about John Wayne Gacy, but at the very end, here's what Sufjan says. This is the last line of the song, and it just stops. He says, in my best behavior, I'm really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets that I have hid. What is Sufjan saying? Is he saying that he's a murderer too? No. He's not saying that I'm just like John Wayne Gacy and the fact that I've gone out and killed a bunch of boys. But what he is saying, I'm just like John Wayne Gacy and the fact the same evil, the same sin that drove him to do what he did is also inside of me. And here's the reality, guys. It's also inside of you. The only difference between you and John Wayne Gacy, me and John Wayne Gacy, is his evil, his sin, just had an opportunity to sprout. Had an opportunity to grow. It was unchecked and it was unabated until eventually it got away from him and caused him to do some horrific, horrific stuff. And guys, if you're like, man, this is kind of a downer of a sermon, like, why are you telling me this? Well, because if you're ever going to truly experience God's grace, you have to first see your absolute need for it. You have to see that there's not, it's not like you just have a little small issue over here. Does that make sense? You have to come to a place where you realize it's not that, I, I'm actually a really good guy. But there's a couple little places I could use Jesus' help every now and then. That's not the way the Bible, that's not what the Bible says at all. The Bible says, Isaiah says, that your righteousness is as a filthy rag before God. 
You know what that means? That's not a, that's not a uh, self-esteem booster. How many of you ever said that to your kids, right? How many of you want to say that to your kids, right? Like, Isaiah says that even on your best days, you don't impress God. You might impress your pastor. You might impress a, someone in your missional community group. You might impress someone at work, but you don't impress God. Like, and that is because we do not measure up to God's standard of holiness. We just don't. And that is the bad news. The bad news is... You are way more evil than you think you are. You're way more sinful than you think you are. And you can't do anything about it in your own power. You cannot clean yourself up. And you cannot perform in such a way that you actually earn God's love. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. You don't have to. The good news is that there is another way to experience God's love. And it's not the way of performance. It's not the way of the law. It's the way of grace. And that's what he goes on to say if you look with me in verse 22. He says, for you have not come, right, to the mountain, to Mount Sinai. But verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the name that David gave the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was the temple, which is where God's hot spot, his presence dwelt. He says, this is what you've come to, church. You've come to Mount Zion. You've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Anytime, by the way, in the Bible you see angels, you're always going to see the presence of God. Angels are where God's presence is. Whenever Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, they look back, what do they see? Garden Eden. Angels. Whenever um, Isaiah gets the vision of God, what's circling around his throne? Angels. Whenever there was the birth announcement, the fact that Jesus has been born, who announces that Jesus has been born? Angels. And he says in here, notice, you have now come into the presence of these angels. And, and he says, I love this. What are they doing? He says, you've come into the presence of thousands of angels in joyful assembly. This is a place of joy. This isn't a place of fear. David says in Psalm 16, it, it says, in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. At the end of times, it says that all sad things will come untrue. It says, sighing and sorrow will flee and gladness and joy will overtake you. Why? Because you will experience God's presence in full. That's what's happening. It says you can get a taste of that right now. Here are these angels. They're worshiping God. They're experiencing joy. It says you've come to these angels. It says you've also, verse 23, come to the church of the firstborn. When you're saved into a relationship with God, you are saved into the church. It is a very American idea. It's not a biblical idea. It's a very American idea that you can have your own little personal relationship with God and not the church. It's not the way the Bible talks. He says, you are, you come to the, to the church of the firstborn. What does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, and actually just in the first century, the firstborn of the family was the one who got the inheritance from their father. If you weren't the firstborn, your father died, you got nothing. If you're firstborn, you got everything. He says, guess what? You have come to the church of the firstborn, which means if you're in on this, you're at this mountain, Mount Zion, what God owns belongs to you. You get God's inheritance. How incredible is that? Like, I tend to live with a scarcity mindset, and you know why? Because I don't believe this truth. We do not live in a world of scarcity, brothers and sisters. We live in a world of abundance. Everything you could ever have and need, you have Because God is your father. Like that's what he's saying here. You are part of the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. 
Do you believe that right now, that your name is written in heaven? Do you believe right now there is coming a day where one day you are going to stand before God? And he's going to say, Jonathan Cooper. You're going to hear the voice of God. Ryan Mason. Krista Burrell. Why do you believe that? Your name is written in the book of life, in the book of heaven. Which means that no matter what's happening right now, your best days are ahead of you. Your future is incredibly bright. I love the story in Luke whenever Jesus sends out his disciples to do ministry, to go cast out demons and to heal the sick, and they come back and they're so excited. They're like, Jesus, it worked! We were casting out demons, we were healing the sick, and what did Jesus say to them? Do you remember the story? He said, do not rejoice in the fact that your name, or do not rejoice in the fact that you're able to cast out demons and do all this great stuff. Rejoice in the fact your name is written in the book of life, in the book of heaven. He says, man, you want joy? Listen, if you root your joy in your accomplishments or your success or your work, even if it's spiritually related, ministry related, if you root your joy in that, your joy will never last. But if you will root your joy in the fact that your name is written in the book of life, that joy will never leave. He says, you've come to this place. The church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, you've come to God, the judge of all. And why does that not scare you? Because he goes on to say in verse 24, because ultimately he says, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you see what the preacher is saying? He's saying there's two approaches to God. There's two approaches to experiencing his love. One is the law. If I perform good enough, if I do good enough, then God will love me more. That is one way, and that will lead you to an anxious life, a lonely life, a disappointing life, a life. It, it is a shaky foundation that will not stand the test of time. It is a dead religion. And how do you know when you're a part of a dead religion? Because it shows you all of your problems and gives you no solution to the problem. That's one way of approaching God's love. But then there's another way. There's another mountain. There's another approach to God that replaces your fear with joy, a way that in the end gives you the life and the love that you're longing for. And how do you get this life? How do you get this love? What the preacher wants you to see, the only way you can get it is not through achieving, but receiving. The only way that you can get this is not through your performance. It's not through trying to be a better guy or a better girl. It's not through your good works, but it's through the grace of God poured out for us, the person and work of Jesus Christ. His blood, he says, speaks a better word than the word of Abel. What does that mean? Well, if you remember, Cain kills Abel because he's jealous of him. He's envious of him. And God says in Genesis, hey, Cain, you hear that? Your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. And then God pronounces judgment on Cain. Why is Jesus's word or his blood speak a better word? Because of Jesus's blood. It doesn't speak vengeance. It speaks forgiveness. Jesus's blood doesn't bring about punishment. It brings about peace. Jesus's blood doesn't condemn your sin. It cleanses your sin. It puts you in right standing before God. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says that God made him, talking about Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin so that you can become the righteousness of God. Do you realize on the cross, Jesus became the most disgusting and vile human being to ever live? He never sinned, but he became your sin. Now, you take the worst sin that you ever committed. I'll bring my worst, you bring your worst. You bring that sin that you're most disgusted by. That sin you're most ashamed of. 
Jesus became that. And that's enough in itself to make him the most disgusting, vile human being to ever live. He didn't just do that for us. He did it for the world. Why? So that he could, as a perfect holy sacrifice, take the wrath of God for that sin. So now, rather than receiving God's wrath, you can receive mercy. You can receive forgiveness. You can receive freedom. So that you can now, because of Christ, stand before God holy and blameless and accepted and know that there is nothing in all of the universe that can ever separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Guys, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. And, and I love how Tim Keller, I, I've been listening to so much Tim Keller lately, I've started reading his biography, and um, he points out in Matthew 27, I'd never noticed this before, but in Matthew 27, um, you, you know how like, before Jesus died, it says the land grew dark, there was darkness over the whole land. Remember that? There was a storm, and then like when Jesus said it is finished, what happened? Anybody remember what happened after Jesus said it's finished? There was an earthquake. There was an earthquake, just like at Mount Sinai. There was darkness. There was an earthquake. The temple began to shake. The, the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. What's happening? At the cross, there was an undoing of Mount Sinai. Jesus was shaken on your behalf so that you don't have to be shaken. So that you can now experience a resilient joy because God's love is set on you 24-7 completely and fully. And there's nothing you can do to make God now love you any more or any less because of Christ. And I don't know. I don't know about you, but man, I need this message every single day. Every day. Because Jared picked me, speaking for myself. I am constantly tempted to go back to Mount Sinai. Because the whole world says that's the way it works, right? You want to move on to the next grade? Do good on this test. You want to keep your job? Perform. You want like the whole world is performance driven. So why would I not think God is that way? And here's how this affects me. This is just me talk, being honest with y'all. It might be different for, for some of you to hear a pastor talk this way, but hang around long enough, you'll realize I'm, I'm jacked up just like you, um, and so I guess I just use the stage for therapy sometimes, you know, it's confession time, um, but I was talking to my spiritual director, I got a spiritual director, Jared Boyd from, from Ohio, great guy, meets with me each week, just kind of helped me understand God's activity in my own life, and it's awesome, um, and I was talking to him a couple months ago, and I said, you know what, I think it'd be so much easier for me to be a Christian if I was not a pastor, and he's like, what do you mean by that? So, so the spiritual director was, right? Like, tell me more about that. And I said, well, if I was, you know, just a Christian and I wasn't a pastor, I feel like that God would just be happy that I'm spending time in the Scripture every morning. That he'd be like, you know what? Like, most people aren't even doing that. I'm just glad that you're trying, son. But because I'm a pastor, I feel like that a lot of times God's looking at me and saying, I really need you to be better. I really need you to, to, to do a little better. You're a pastor. And what that does for me is sometimes it, it takes my times in Scripture and prayer, rather than it being moments of intimacy where I'm just trying to experience God's love, I'm now all of a sudden trying to earn His love. Does that make sense? And, and you can know when that's happening because the Bible, prayer, worship, all of that will no longer feel like a delight, it'll feel like a duty. 
something you're really trying to do just to get God off your back. What's the remedy to that? The gospel. Believing what this says. That is the remedy. To believe that when you trust in Jesus, that you experience a union with him. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. Remember Jesus' words in John 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. How does a branch bear fruit? A branch bears fruit, not by going, okay, bear fruit, bear fruit, bear fruit, right? It just abides in the vine, and it experiences the divine flow of God's love that's constant, flowing into you, and that's what eventually begins to change you. This is what's true of you if you're a Christian. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. What is true of him is true of you. God's love right now is flowing into you, and there's nothing, guys, that can separate you from that love. Some of you think that when you sin, I might be giving an image to what you've been feeling right now. Some of you, when you sin in this room, you think that every time you sin, it's like you're putting trash between you and God. And the more you sin, the more you just have this garbage pile that's separating you from God. And so what do you try to do? You try to clean it up, right? But the more you try to clean up that garbage, that, that heap of trash, the messier it gets. That's the image you have of God. That is the antithesis of what the gospel is saying. The gospel is not saying that you have to clean up the trash so that you can experience God's love. The gospel is saying that Jesus came and cleaned up the trash. He swept it all away. You now stand before God, with God, right now, holy, blameless, and accepted. And if you hear that and you're like, sweet. So, like, I can basically go live however I want, right? Like, I can go, like, sin big time. I've got a list of things I've been wanting to do, actually. I was just kind of afraid if I did them, I'd go to hell. But, like, now I'm like, okay. I'll do it, and then I'll say, like, God, like, you're so gracious. I'll give God glory for how gracious he is after I sin big time, right? Like, that's what we're doing. Well, the, the preacher actually blows up that idea with what he says next. And this is where we'll end. He says, in light of this grace, in light of this love, in light of this goodness, in light of his kindness, in light of God's mercy, in light of the gospel. Verse 25, look with me. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape, talking about Israel, when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook on earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. What's he talking about here? The end of times. He's not just going to shake Mount Sinai, He's going to shake everything in the heavens and the earth. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken. That is created things. So that what cannot be shaken may remain. What he's saying is like Jesus, yeah, he's love, but he's also holy. He's powerful and he's coming back again. And if you're not in Christ, you're going to be shaken to pieces. But if you're in Christ, all the evil, all the bad, all the stuff you hate, that's going to be done away with. And you're going to experience the fullness of joy. And so what he says is, is just this. Don't get flippant. Remember Paul says in Romans 1.17, the righteous live by faith. So guys, keep living by faith. Keep being obedient. Keep trusting Jesus. Following Jesus, and look at this, verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. 
Golly, man, some of us, I'm talking myself here, we need to be thankful. No matter what season you're in, give thanks to God, because at least it's not hell. Feels like it, but it's not. Let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably, acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What does he mean here when he says God is a consuming fire? Does he mean that, that his holiness makes him a consuming fire, or is it his love? It makes him a consuming fire. Yes. Yes. And why is this important? Because if you're ever going to experience God as he really is, you need to realize that God is the God of both mountains. He's the God of Mount Zion, and he's the God of Mount Sinai. God didn't become all of a sudden not holy anymore since Jesus came. He's still all of that. Everything that they saw on Mount Sinai, God is still that. But he has provided a way for you to not enter into that holiness and experience not fear but great joy and it's so important that you get this when you get this he says man rather than being flippant rather than taking grace for granted we burn through fuel i mean we burn through grace like like a 747 burns through fuel and we are just like we experience so much grace day after day after day after day and it's just like eh When you understand who God really is and what he's done for you, you won't take grace for granted. You'll obey his voice, and in gratitude, you will worship him with awe. You'll actually be amazed by who God is and what he's done for you in Christ. I remember a chart I saw years ago. It's called the Gospel Chart. I'll put it on the screen for you, I think. The Gospel Grid is what it's called. And it shows how when you start following Jesus, there's a conversion, right? You see it there. And, and, and at first, God's holiness and your sinfulness doesn't seem to be that far apart here's the bad news the longer you follow jesus the more you're going to realize just how holy god is and therefore how sinful you are here's the good news if you will keep going back to jesus you'll see how that makes him sweeter and sweeter and sweeter and better and better and better and bigger and bigger and bigger which is the whole point of hebrews it's about the sufficiency of jesus he's better and he's bigger than you could ever imagine the gospel will not become old news to you. It won't. It'll become sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. And so here's the question today. Like, do you believe this gospel? And, and maybe, look, I know you believe it in your head. 95% of you in the room today believe the gospel with your head. That's my guess. But do you believe it in here? Like, has it settled into your heart how good this God really is and what all he's done for you? And if you're like, well, how do I know? Well, one of the ways you'll know is you'll try to be obedient and not to earn God's love but from the place of love. When you're living in sin, you won't feel good about it. Does that make sense? Like, it, you'll feel uneasy about it. You'll feel not condemnation from God, but compassion from God. There'll be a tenderness where he tries to, to lead you away from that sin, that death, and into life. I'm not saying you won't struggle with sin. You will struggle with sin. But that's the point. You'll struggle with it. You won't be cool with it. So one of the ways you know that you've received this gospel is, is, is man, like the grace begins to work. You're beginning to pr produce more fruit in your life. Another way that you can know if this gospel is just here but not here, and this is a big one, I think, for us guys, is how do you know if, you, if maybe you believe the gospel here but it's not settled in here? Well, according to this passage, your worship of God is passionless. 
And notice, I didn't say your worship is passionless. I said your worship of God is passionless. Why did I say it like that? Because we're all worshipers. Every single person in here is a worshiper of someone or something. What I mean by that is everyone is looking to someone or something for security, for significance, for satisfaction. Some of you are looking to popularity. Some of you are looking to to, uh, sex. Some of you are looking to your spouse. Some of you are looking to your kids. Some of you are looking to money. And here's, I just want to say this. If you ultimately try to worship anything other than God, it will enslave you and eventually drive you into the ground. If you worship beauty, you'll never feel pretty enough. If you worship success, you'll always feel like a failure. If you worship your spouse, you worship your kids, and they die or they leave you, what's going to happen to your joy? It's going to be buried with them. But if you look to Jesus, you worship Jesus. doesn't mean there won't have, be hard times. doesn't mean there won't be good times. I mean, there won't be difficult times doesn't mean there won't be loss. But man, you will be filled with an unshakable joy. That's what he's pointing to here. And so the question today is like, are you worshiping Jesus with all? Are you in all of him? Some of us in here, I think there are some of us, let me say it like this. I'm going to be very careful here, okay? Please understand my heart behind what I'm about to say. Like, if you're introverted, if you're a quiet person by nature, if you just don't get that excited over anything, I think it's unfair for us to expect you to be different in here, okay? I do think that. I think there's just some people that are going to worship differently. It doesn't have to look like raised hands. It doesn't have to look like, it's just different, okay? And I'm not going to judge you based off of what I see on the outside. There's a lot of warnings in the Bible about that. Okay, God's looking at your heart, not, but, but let me say this. <clears throat> there are some of us in here that are more emotionally moved by what someone does with the ball than what Christ has done for us on the cross. And I, I think I'm one of them sometimes. I'm one of them sometimes. And we don't have to, to, to feel a ton of condemnation over that and beat ourselves up over that, but we should get curious about it. And we should at least ask the question, like, why is it? And, and I don't want to beat up on sports. Like, I love sports. It could be anything. Our job, our money, our kids. I get more excited over them than I do over God, whatever. Like, fill in the blank. If sports isn't your thing, forget that. But if there are things in the world that get us more excited, that, that, that pull our awe and our amazement more than God, we should at least be curious about that and, and, and ask the question, why is that? Why is that? And then here's what I want to encourage you to do. Like, if that's where you are this morning, if you're like, man, honestly, like, yeah, I'm just kind of like, what is that Alanis Morissette song? I got one hand in my pocket, the other one, uh, what did she say? You know what I'm talking about? Sorry, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, like, some of us, like, yeah, peace, okay. Some of us are like, we come to worship, it's like, I got one hand in my pocket and the other one in a coffee cup, right? It's like, whatever. Like, maybe you worship that way. Like, maybe truly, it's like, maybe truly, like, you are in a state of worship. And if you are, praise God. But there is at least a little bit for me that I'm curious about, like, are we in these moments amazed by God's grace? Are we amazed by his presence? And, and if we're not, this is a safe place for you to keep coming. No judgment for me. But here's what I want to encourage you to do. If that's where you are today and it's like, yeah, man, I just, I'm not really amazed by God in worship here or even throughout the week. Whatever you do, don't try harder to be better. 
Did you hear me? Don't try harder to be better. Don't make this about you and what you do, but begin to make it about Christ and what he's already done for you. Meditate on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Focus on the gospel, which ultimately says what? And we're done. The gospel tells us that we are far worse than we ever imagined, but we're more loved than we ever dreamed because of what Christ has accomplished for us. And so with that, I'm going to invite our band to come forward. I just want to pray for you right now that the gospel will move from here to here. It's a long distance, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't seem like it physically, but it sure is spiritually. And so I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for a moment. I want to pray over you. We're about to enter into a time of worship. And this could be a time where you feel some condemnation, you feel some fear, you feel some judgment, you feel some guilt. Don't make this about worship styles. Don't make this about all the things you've got to do differently. Like, man, like, that's exactly what the enemy wants to do in a moment like this, to set your eyes on you rather than on Christ, to put you on Mount Sinai rather than on Mount Zion. And so I just want to pray against that right now. Father, would you, through your Holy Spirit, bring us under a place of grace rather than under the law. There are some in here, maybe because of religious upbringings, whatever it may be, who believes that God, the better they perform, the more they do, the more you love them. And I just want to rebuke that thought in the name of Jesus. And I want to pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would in this moment, the time we have left, help the gospel of Jesus Christ to not just be true news, but good news in all of our hearts. And that that would transform us. That we would be a people who live and sing and play and work. Not from a place of trying to earn your acceptance, but because we know we already are accepted. Because of what you've accomplished for us, Christ. Help that to give us the freedom to live in such a way that is for our good, for the good of others, and ultimately for your glory. And if there's somebody here that does not know you today, does not have a personal relationship with you, or someone listening online, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will open up their heart to receive your love, to know they don't have to clean themselves up, they don't have to have all their questions answered, they don't have to figure it all out, to know that because of what you've accomplished for them, Christ, that they can be fully accepted, fully loved, forgiven right now, fully and completely. It's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen.